This morning we are talking um, about, we are continuing our, our series uh, called The King and His Cross, uh, and we are in the book of Mark, uh, and just talking about Jesus, who he is, and what he did for us, and just learning that uh, from that perspective, and looking at in our own lives, of like, how can we learn from who Jesus was, and what he did, how can we live that in our everyday lives, and um, we are in Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 20 uh, this morning. Um, and this is a snapshot of like, um, this is one of three stories that Mark uh, paints for us as readers um, about who Jesus is in a space of 24 hours. And um, we've already looked at him calming the storm, and we've already looked at him uh, healing the woman with internal bleeding and also raising Jairus' daughter to life. And this is like sandwiched in the middle, uh, this story. And um, before we start... Um, I have a little illustration that I want us to focus ourselves on this story. So um, the last few years, uh, you may have noticed it, that we as a society have changed how we deal with money, haven't we? Uh, we've gone um, from uh, exchanging money in a bank to now often I only do my banking online or even uh, mostly I do it on my app. Uh, who else does their banking on an app? Yes, loads of people, don't we? We do it on our app all the time. Uh, It's really easy. Um, We can also pay for things like by contactless, which feels like the worst thing in the world because you're like exchanging nothing, but you're just like, oh yeah, I'll just pay with my card. There you go, done. It's the weirdest feeling, but so easy. And also, um, our actual notes have changed, haven't they? They've gone from these uh, crusty, old, crumpled notes to shiny, new plastic notes like this one that I prepared earlier. And um, these are cleaner than before. They're stronger. Okay. Ooh, yeah, really strong. That's a good illustration of strong. It's hard to do with only one hand. Uh, and they're safer than old notes. They reckon that they're much more easily able to detect forgeries and it's much more difficult to uh, bring a fraudulent banknote into a, a bank. But still, but still, uh, the fraudsters are trying to make fake banknotes. And they are trying uh, to fool uh, people with fake banknotes. And they've, the banks, they've had training on how to spot a fake. And the training is this. Is that they get them to study the real banknote. Learn every single thing about it study all its grooves, all its changes, all the different things about it, so that when a fraudulent note comes up, they'll be able to spot it a mile off, because they know the real deal. And this morning, I mean, I could pass it around, but I think it'd only get to one person, wouldn't it, if I said, uh, this morning, what I want us to do is to focus on the real deal. We're going to come across a character in this story that could confuse us, scare us, make us doubt things about our faith. But my prayer for us this morning is that we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on the real deal. We focus on him and see what he is doing. So Jesus has um, been declaring and showing who he is um, by showing what authority he has over certain situations. Uh, we saw that in the calm in the storm, he had authority over the elements. Uh, we saw that authority over the physical by healing uh, the wound with internal bleeding. And we saw his authority over the eternal, over life itself, by healing Jairus' daughter. 
And in the middle of these stories is this one, which is lovingly called Jesus Heals the Demon-Possessed Man and it shows his authority over the spiritual. Now, when I say those words, demon and possessed, that can create images in our heads that can be uh, confusing uh, or wrong or difficult to understand. And um, when we think about this subject, about demons, about the devil, we can often fall into two camps. One, we pretend that this, this side of things doesn't exist, that there isn't um, a kind of evil realm in the world. Or two, that we go the complete opposite and we get obsessive about this side of things. And um, two small points to note before we really get into the passage. One is that demons are real. We see this in this passage that Jesus is facing a battle. And we all face battles in our lives. And there are such things as angels and demons. And um, one of my favorite films ever is The Usual Suspects. Great film. And there's a quote in that where it says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The devil loves to convince us that he doesn't exist, not real. But we need to recognize that actually what we read in Scripture, what we've seen with the outworkings of Scripture, there is a good, there is an evil, there is a light, there is darkness. And we need to hold that and weigh that as it should be. But with that as well, we don't want to get obsessive. So we focus on the real deal. We focus on our banknote. We focus on Jesus. We mustn't linger and purely focus on the dark side of things, but look to the light. Look to who Jesus is. And our focus this morning is who he is, what he does, and what authority he has. So with all that in mind, we're going to read Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. It should appear on screen behind me. And I'll try and use my best BBC voice to read it here. It's a long passage, so bear with me. Here we go. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his feet in front of him. Or fell on his knees, I should say. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed 
by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Amen. So like I said, this passage is a long passage, it's a complex passage, but answers the question that Mark has been asking throughout this gospel. Who is this man? And what is his authority? And this morning, I just want to paint a picture for you. Maybe you're in church for the first time or the first time in a long time. Maybe you've been in church every week for the last five years. I just want to repaint a picture of who Jesus is. Who is this man and what authority he has? So firstly, the first thing that we see of Jesus is that he is a man of unlimited compassion. So we may remember before, uh, just as Jesus was um, coming over the last passage that we had from before um, crossing the lake, was that he was teaching on the other side of the lake. And he had been uh, performing miracles, he had um, been teaching to the crowds, healing the sick, and bringing the kingdom of God onto earth. And then uh, we see at the end of verse uh, chapter 4 that Jesus says to his disciples, we need to go over to the other side of the lake. And cross to the other side. Now the disciples, they could have been like, well, why do we need to do that? Everything's happening here. It seems like stuff's going on. This is a good place to be. But they say, okay, right, we're going to follow Jesus. He says we need to go over to the other side. We're going to go over to the other side. And um, they make this decision to cross the Sea of Galilee. We see how Jesus calms the storm. And we come into this region called the Gerasenes. And Jesus knew he had to come over. He doesn't say why initially he came over, but we knew he had to come over. And he encounters this guy all the way through Mark 5, 1 to 20. And then what's interesting is the next verse, which really struck me. Verse 21 is what he does next. It says in verse 21, Jesus got into the boat again, went back to the other side of a lake where a large crowd gathered around. So Jesus encounters this man, this demoniac. And then the next thing he does is he goes back where he came. He goes back to the other side of the lake. And this tees up my ultimate dad joke, uh, which Jill will say is an ultimate dad joke, although I'm not a dad yet, which is, how do we know that Jesus was an Adele fan? Anyone? Because he said hello from the other side. I was so proud of that. I love the groans. That's what got me there. Come on. It says that. But even more than that, and probably a lot better than that, is that it shows that Jesus goes for the one. He has that unlimited compassion that he saw this man was broken. He saw this man was lost. He saw this man on the margins. And he goes for the one. And he says, I know you are in distress. 
and I'm going to come and I'm going to break you free. I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to break those chains. And this man had been rejected by society. He was living in the tombs because that's the only place he could go. Verse 4 said he'd often been chained hand and foot. So he was in slavery almost. He was chained. They just said, let's put this man here. We have no idea what to do with him. We've tried with the doctors. We've tried with every medical kind of thing we can do. We have no idea how to heal him. So let's just put him out of sight, out of the way. Let's chain him up and forget about him. And the image that I got when I was reading that passage and thinking about that was they've just swept this man under the carpet, haven't they? They've just kind of put that carpet up and thought, right, don't know what to do. Let's just sweep him under the carpet, ignore, forget, pretend he doesn't exist. For some of us, we feel like we've been swept under the carpet, don't we? We maybe feel we've been swept under the carpet by a spouse or a friend. Or maybe we feel like we've been swept under a carpet like in our job situation, that we're in the, the corridor that nobody ever goes down, the place that no one thinks about. Some of us, we've maybe done the reverse of that, where we've swept parts of our lives under the carpet and thought, actually, there's a real issue here, but I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going just gonna to put it away, put it in that drawer that no one ever knows about. I may be ashamed of that side of my life, and I don't want anyone else knowing. And I certainly don't want Jesus knowing about that side of my life. We've just swept under the carpet. And Jesus shows he has unlimited compassion. He sees the man in distress. He sees the man who is the least likely, the least likely that he would potentially go to. Broken to the very core of his being and he wants to rescue him. It's like he's taken up that carpet, shook it about, got that out and brought it back in the open and then taken it away and scrubbed it away, that dirty piece, whatever that is, he's taken that away. He's not just moved it from one place to another, but he's taken that away. He went across that stormy, stormy sea for this one guy so he could be free. He does it for this man and he can do it for us again. We've seen that unlimited times in the Bible where Jesus goes for the one and brings compassion and brings that person out of that slavery, out of those chains. He heals the woman of internal bleeding for 12 years. He raises his Jairus' daughter back to life. He heals a man who is deaf and mute. He gives blind Bartimaeus his sight. He shows how we should have compassion by the tale of the Good Samaritan, not walking on, but stopping and helping our neighbour, going above and beyond the call of duty. And ultimately, he shows his unlimited compassion by the sacrifice he made for you and for me on the cross, giving up his life and dying on the cross, taking our wrongs, our sin, our shame, everything we've swept under the carpet, taking it upon himself, paying the price that we could not afford. He's a man of unlimited compassion. I know for me, my compassion can be severely limited sometimes. I think I've tried one thing, it doesn't work. I've tried another, it doesn't work. And then I give up. Jesus never gives up. His compassion is unlimited. 
I was just reminded as I was preparing this morning of uh, the film Avatar. Has anyone seen that film Avatar? It was huge back in the day. And everyone's like, what's Avatar? Who's that? What? Don't remember. It was like the biggest grossing film ever for a while, mainly because everyone wanted to see it in 3D. Um, and then 3D realised that it was really dizzy and confusing and rubbish. Um, but for Avatar, it worked great for their box office. Um, but there's this moment in Avatar where... Um, there's these two people from different worlds, from different lands, from different nations, and they learn a way to communicate. And it's this little word, a little phrase even, three little words, and it's, it's, I see you. And what we discover that means is that's not just, oh, there you are, I see you, but it's like, I see you. I see you in existence. Now that I've said, I see you, I see that you exist. I see the very being of your soul. I see your love. I see who you are as a person. And that brings meaning and purpose to that person. And then they kind of, uh, that begins a friendship, a relationship. And Jesus shows an unlimited compassion by saying, I see you. I see you. I see you. He brings that. He says, I see you. You might be the only one in this situation, but I see you. Who is this man? He's a man of unlimited compassion. He's also a man of unprecedented power. Uh, He comes to the other side of the lake. He knows he has come for the one. And it's quickly obvious that there's going to be almost a clash of kingdoms here. There's going to be a clash of good and evil, a clash of light and darkness. Uh, And it's apparent that Jesus is the only one who can help. Again, this man, it says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Verse 4, he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 5, he would cry out at night, uh, almost like a howling wolf. He would cut himself, he would self-harm. And when Jesus asks the man his name, the demon responds by saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And a Roman legion made up of about 6,000 men. And uh, scholars aren't sure whether that means that there were 6,000 demons. Probably not. But basically there was a lot of demons and they were pretty powerful. And this man was outcast. The people they tried, but they just didn't know what to do. They'd run out of options. And only Jesus could help. Only he could come and bring his power to overcome the situation. Um, you, if you know me for any length of period, you'll know I love sport. And one of my favourite and most earliest sporting memories was the 1995 World Cup in South Africa. I probably remember it watching it on TV. Um, and um, I hadn't really watched rugby before then, but I was fascinated um, by the game and the tournament as a whole. Uh, so it was the first uh, tr- live sporting event to be uh, held in South Africa since apartheid. So as watching as a viewer, we've seen a whole new country, a whole new world, a whole new, new spectacle. It was probably the first um, televised sporting event that I remember that had a theme song, The World in Union. Do we remember that? It's the world in union. I would love to sing it along to that. Do you ever remember that? No? Oh, thank you. Got me. And it was also the birth of the professional game of rugby union. So before that, um, it had been an amateur game. Um, but this was the first time that we saw actually that people were starting to make careers of this. And it launched 
a global superstar and one of my heroes. And he embodied what it meant to be a professional rugby player. And his name was Jonah Lomu. Lomu. Jonah Lomu, yeah. And um, he was the breakout star of this World Cup. And uh, he was a winger for the New Zealand All Blacks. And uh, he scored seven tries in the tournament. But he was probably most famous for his four tries in the semi-final where he scored against England as they triumphed 45-29. And um, his most famous moment, the most iconic moment of the whole World Cup was his first try where the ball gets passed out to him and um, he doesn't catch it. it. Kind of, It's a long pass. It misses him and he kind of catches it and he bounces. And this England player comes towards him and he just like, shoves him off. <laughs> Off you go. And uh, he shoves another one off. And he like, kind of stumbles. And then there's one guy between him and the try line. And he literally runs over this England defender. Like just like a rhino trampling like a, a stranded gazelle or something. Just tramples over and scores this try. And he scored three more after that. And after the game, the England captain was asked about his opinion on Jonah Lomu. And he said, he's a freak, and the sooner he goes away, the better. <laughs> Which to me, I sense there's a bit of a sore loser there, that they didn't have Jonah in their team. The reason Jonah Lomu was so effective, so explosive, changed the game of rugby, was because he was six foot five, and he weighed almost 19 stone, and he played on the wing. Now, to put that in context, I used to play on the wing. I'm not six foot five, and I'm not 19 stone, I can tell you that for free. And um, it was his power, it was his explosiveness, it was his dynamism within that, his brute force that people couldn't handle. The point was his opponents had never seen that power before coming from a winger. And Jesus brought with him unprecedented power. And the demons knew it. They cried out, what do you want? Don't torture us. They begged Jesus to leave. And Jesus decided where they would go. He gave them permission. He had total authority, total power over the spiritual realm. And if it's like a spiritual battle, Jesus is like Jonah Lomu, going across these demons, trampling over them with unprecedented power. They didn't stand a chance. And if he can deal with the darkness then, we can know that whatever we are facing in our lives, Jesus will be able to help us. Jesus will be able to come in his power and help us. And as I was preparing today, I had an image um, of someone uh, who'd gone themselves into a difficult situation. They could see no way out. And basically at the start, they just, they told a lie. They told one lie, which had then escalated to more and more. And there was more people getting involved. And then as soon as, it was just all these lies just kept on coming and kept on coming. And it was like, this person was just trapped in these lies. Like, I don't know how to get out of it. My encouragement is when we have ministry time at the end, come for prayer and ask Jesus for his power to break in, to repent, to say sorry and say, Jesus, I need you. He has that power and that power for us. So Jesus is a man of unlimited compassion, a man of unprecedented, uh, unprecedented power, and also a man of ultimate uh, transformation. I love the contrast of where we see this man at the start and where we see him at the end of this passage. The first time we meet him, he's bound in chains. He's crying out, he's self-harming, he's 
uncontrollable in the tombs under control of the demons. But verse 15, we see a complete contrast of that. It says, the townspeople found this man sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. He transforms from roaming the tombs to, and being chained to sitting freely. He transforms from being naked to fully clothed. He transforms from convulsing, talking crazy, to being in his right mind. He transforms from being barely recognizable as a human being to a man that Jesus knows and Jesus loves. This is the transforming power that Jesus offers each one of us. He can bring ultimate transformation in our lives. I'm sure many of us have stories of what that looks like that we can share maybe over coffee after of this is how Jesus has transformed my life. But one story I want to tell you is about a guy called Daryl. And um, he grew up in a life of crime. And um, he started just stealing um, cars um, and kind of just looting, doing that. But then he's found himself getting deeper and deeper into this life of crime. And um, he tells one story where, uh, as his initiation into a gang, he had to um, perform an act which would basically um, grievously bodily harm someone else. And that was his initiation into that gang. A brutal, brutal initiation. And then that just got worse and worse and deeper and deeper. And ultimately, a few years down the line of of getting deeper into this life of crime, uh, he was in crime court and he was sent to prison. And at that moment, Daryl said to himself, if I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can be. I'm going to be the worst person that's ever lived. I'm going to be as bad as I possibly can, that people will fear me, that people will know, don't mess. And he got moved from prison to prison, maximum security, all that. And then one day, when he was in prison, uh, there was a young guy going around with a clipboard, and um, he was asked to go along to Alpha. And he said, right, I don't even care what it is. Get out of my face or I'm going to slap you. That's what he said. So the guy got out of his face, obviously. But then he was like, the next day, this guy came back, back with this, this clipboard. And he was like, I was just getting ready to slap. I imagine he was like winding up his arm, like just to be like, like that. He was like, I was just about to get in slapping range where he just panicked. And he said, uh, you get out of your cell on Wednesday lunchtime, you get free biscuits and free coffee. And Dad was like, oh, get out of my cell, free biscuits, free coffee, sign me up. Cool. And um, he went along to Alpha, which, of course, we're starting in a couple of weeks. You'd be very welcome to come along. And he said, I argued all the way through. I argued everything. But every time I argued, they came back at me with love, with acceptance for who I was. And I saw Jesus through them. And then he was in his cell one night. And he was like, I need to pray. I don't like who I am as an individual. I need to pray. So he prayed. He didn't know if he was doing it right. He just said a simple prayer. He said this. God, I need you to take away the anger, the violence, the hate, and the addictions. If you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. And he went to sleep. Next day comes. Wakes up. Goes through his usual morning routine. First thing he does in the morning, has a smoke. As you do. 
if you're in prison, like, I don't know, maybe, picks up his smoke, goes to light it, and he can't, he, he can't even go near it. It's like everything about the cigarette is, is, makes him want to vomit, makes him want to be sick. So he chucks all of his cigarettes out of the window. And he's like, what is going on? That has never happened before. Uh, went to have a shave, decided that's the next part of my morning routine, went to have a shave, starts having a shave, looks in the mirror, and he's stopped dead by what he sees in the mirror. Because what he saw in the mirror, he didn't recognize. And it was his face smiling, not only smiling, but beaming at him. And he was like, I haven't, I haven't smiled in years. I don't know who, it was like, and he described it as like someone had taken the top of his head off and put uh, freezing cold water through him and he was all made new and clean and he couldn't understand. He was like, this is not who I am. This is not what I'm used to. So he's a bit freaked out. So he calls the chaplain and he tells the chaplain the story. And the chaplain said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that stands here today. You're a new creation. And I was like, yeah. I've been transformed overnight by Jesus. And we can have that transformation that was in the man, that was in Daryl, can be in our lives as well. It might not be as dramatic, but it will be for us. Because we know what we swept under the carpet. And we know what Jesus can transform. Through his compassion, power, and transformation, Jesus offers us what can be summed up in one word. He offers us freedom. Not the Mel Gibson, rubbish Scottish accent freedom, but real freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from sin, from addiction, freedom from hate, freedom from anger, freedom from pornography, freedom from mental health issues, freedom from what we need freedom from. He offers to break those chains and bring Freedom. Jesus is the a man of unlimited compassion, unprecedented power, and ultimate transformation. He is fully human, fully God, son of the Lord Most High, whose enemies quake before him, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's who Jesus is. That is who he is. That's the man, the king, the God that we worship. Isn't that amazing? But what is our response? In this story, we, we can see we have a choice. In verse 15, we see what the townsfolk say. They were afraid of what happened. And in verse 17, tragically, this is what they say. They say, the people pleaded with Jesus to leave. They begged Jesus to leave. This ultimate display of who Jesus is. And they say, Please leave. We can't handle it. But the man himself, what does he do? He sees Jesus leave and he begs him to stay or begs to go with him. But Jesus says, no. I want you to stay and to share your story. And that's what the man does. He knows that Jesus has transformed him and then he stays and he shares his story. He began to tell the whole Decapolis region, that's ten towns, the whole region, how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. 
This Jesus, he brings freedom, but it comes at a cost. The crowd wanted Jesus to leave because they were scared, but also potentially because they'd lost their livelihood, their possessions in the pigs. That would have been a nice wheat earner for them. And they thought, actually, no, we don't want to lose anything else. And when Jesus brings freedom, he asks other stuff to let go. He wants to make room. We don't want to just be a compartment where Jesus is just in our compartment in our little lives. He wants to take over. He wants our whole lives. And that means some things have to move. Some things have to be let go. So are we holding on to any chains? Are we begging Jesus to leave or are we running to him and begging for freedom? I know just before we have ministry time, we can sometimes be British about this. And uh, I don't want to ask Jesus for freedom here. You know, stiff British upper, British upper lip, you know, stiff upper lip, saving face. It's okay. I read this quote this week by R.T. Kendall. He said, when you go to God, don't put your best foot forward, but put your worst foot forward. Isn't that lovely? Jesus wants our mess. He wants to bring freedom. He wants to bring transformation. If we just bring our best of us, then he can't do that, can he? I want to finish with this. I love that if we read further on the story in Mark 7, Jesus does return to this region. And he heals a man who is both deaf and mute. And it says there was a massive crowd there and they couldn't stop talking about what Jesus had done. So much so that he had to say, stop talking about what I've done. I don't know, but for me, I think that was the man's legacy. That was his legacy. He told his friends, his family, his neighbours, his work colleagues, um, everyone he knew about the freedom that he received from Jesus. So that when Jesus came back, there was a crowd who were hungry, who were desperate, who were waiting for him to receive that freedom as well. Jesus offers this freedom in breaking chains in his compassion and allowing us to share our story. So my question is, will we run to him or will we ask him to leave? Can I encourage you this morning? Freedom is here in this place. Would you run to him? Would you come to him? Let's stand.